old pilot's plain tales. The son of Enola Tibbets. He's dead now, but you'll find no stone to mark his grave since he has neither grave nor marker, which is a little odd for a much-decorated American hero who fought for his country with outstanding bravery. But it was his wish, and his family accepted that. Paul Warfield Tibbets originally came from Quincy, Illinois, but his family moved around until they settled for a while in Florida. His father, Paul Tibbetts Sr., sold confectionery, which would make him any boy's dream father, but Paul Jr. was interested in flying. By the age of 12, he was helping out in an old wacko, flown by Doug Davis as part of his flying circus, throwing out candy bars fitted with tiny parachutes into the crowd of onlookers below. It made a big impression on the youngster, and he later said, From that day on, I knew I had to fly. Back on the move, Tibbetts attended the Western Military Academy and then the University of Florida, but his interest in aviation continued and he took flying lessons at Miami's Opelika Airport, although his intended profession at this time was as a surgeon. However, before he completed his studies at the University of Cincinnati, he decided to enlist in the U.S. Army and become a pilot in the Army Air Corps. With his background, Paul had been able to get into the Aviation Cadet Training Program, which gave him an edge, and during his Army flight training, he was assessed as an above-average pilot and commissioned as a second lieutenant. Training complete, he was assigned to the 16th Observation Squadron, which supported the infantry school at the nearby Fort Benning. In his private life, he had fallen in love with his bride-to-be, Lucy, and they were married at the Holy Trinity Roman Catholic Seminary. His promotion continued initially to first lieutenant and then to captain, and he was selected to be a personal pilot for Brigadier General George Patton. With the United States' involvement in World War II approaching, Tibbets was transferred to fly large bombers, initially the A-20 Havoc and then the B-17 Flying Fortress. He was expecting to go to MacDill Field when the Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor brought the country to a war footing. With submarine attacks expected, he soon found himself flying anti-submarine patrols out of Pope Army Airfield in B-18 Bolos instead. 1942 saw Tibbets being given the command of the 340th Bombardment Squadron and they deployed with their B-17s to join the 8th Air Force in England, operating out of RAF Polbrook. They were part of the 97th Bombardment Group, which had been hastily assembled there to fulfil the needs for high-altitude daylight bombing, a mission for which they had had little training. The Royal Air Force, keen to assist, provided veteran instructors to give some help, but being the first group to be deployed to fight the war in Europe, they were very much the pathfinders for the Army Air Force in this theatre. Pretty soon, Paul Tibbets was made second in command of the group, 
and he found himself flying the lead bomber, the butcher shop, on their first raid against the rail marshalling yard in Rouen, France. It was a success, despite the fact that he wasn't with his regular crew, nor in his own aircraft. Within a few weeks, Tibbets flew another groundbreaking mission when he led the first American raid of over 100 aircraft to attack industrial targets in the French city of Lille. They were continually harried by German fighters, resulting in the loss of 33 out of the 108 aircraft that participated, and bombing accuracy was poor. For the first time, Paul saw the damage they did when not hitting the target, but bombing innocent French civilians, and he faced the dilemma that troubled many in times of war. These people don't have any business getting killed, he thought. They aren't soldiers. He debated with himself on the morals of warfare, and came to the conclusion that he was supposed to be a bomber pilot and was there to destroy a target. I wouldn't be worth anything if I didn't do that. He made up his mind, then, that the morality of dropping that bomb was not his business. When he was instructed to perform a military mission, that was the thing he was going to do to the best of his ability. In the lead-up to the Allied invasion of North Africa, the commander of the 8th Air Force was ordered to provide his two best pilots for a secret mission. Tibbets was one of those chosen, and he flew Major General Clark to Gibraltar, and later he repeated the flight with the Supreme Allied Commander, Lieutenant General Eisenhower, on board. Historian Stephen Ambrose described Tibbets as, by reputation, the best flyer in the Army Air Force. In North Africa, as part of Major General Jimmy Doolittle's 12th Air Force, he participated in much fierce fighting against heavily defended objectives to pave the way for Allied landings. By now, Tibbets had received a field promotion to Colonel but it was blocked by the Assistant Chief of Staff of Operations, where he had now been assigned, saying there was only going to be one colonel in operations. When the Chief of the Army Air Forces asked for an experienced pilot to help develop the new B-29 Superfortress, Jimmy Doolittle recommended Tibbets, so Paul found himself back in the States working with Boeing in Wichita. He flew many hours on the new aircraft, more than any other pilot, and he contributed a great deal to the success of the bomber. His experience led to a recommendation that he join the Manhattan Project, the Allied group who were developing the world's first atomic bomb. Finally promoted to Colonel, Tibbets was given the task of creating the 509th Composite Group, a completely self-contained organisation of 1,800 men with 15 B-29s. Its importance became apparent by the priority that was given to the vast array of military stores they needed. Already working at high levels of secrecy, within the 509th, a group of hand-picked specialists, known as the First Ordnance, who were skilled with metallurgy, were tasked with building the first bombs, whilst Project Alberta, B-29 
became the group who dealt with the problems of delivery. Already a conventional bomb, made to the same dimensions and weight of the Fat Man atomic bomb, had been created, known as the Pumpkin. These provided realistic training for the men redesigning the forward bomb bay of the B-29 and the crews training to drop it. The aircraft modified to carry the huge weapon were part of the silver-plated project, later shortened to silver-plate, a term that encompassed the training as well. Thin Man and Fat Man, code names were adopted for the weapons themselves, a cover story was devised that Silver Plate was all about modifying a Pullman railway car for use by President Franklin Roosevelt, Thin Man, and the United Kingdom's Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, Fat Man, on a secret tour of the United States. On the 16th of July 1945, the Gadget, the nickname given to the first test nuclear weapon, was hoisted to the top of a hundred-foot tower and detonated. It produced the equivalent of 20 kilotons of TNT and the shock wave was felt over a hundred miles away. To explain away that in the mushroom cloud that reached over seven miles into the clear sky, a cover story about an ammunition magazine explosion at Almogordo Field was issued. Oppenheimer, who led the team of scientists who developed the weapon, wrote that he knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most were silent. He remembered a line from Hindu scripture, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another, he said. By now Tibbets and his team had been moved to an airfield on the island of Tinian, part of the Mariana group, where they set up the necessary facilities to assemble and deliver the weapon. They had a number of concerns, not the least of which was the reliability of the B-29. They had been conducting attacks on Japan, dropping the conventionally armed pumpkin bombs, which contained a mere three tons of high explosive, when one fell through the closed Bombay doors of the B-29 onto the taxiway in a shower of sparks as the aircraft named Strange Cargo prepared for takeoff. Firefighters managed to douse the weapon with foam and it didn't detonate, but then, within a period of only a week, four B-29s crashed and burned on the runway. If this happened to one carrying an atomic bomb, it could easily detonate with catastrophic consequences. From then on, it was decided to load the breech of the atomic weapon once the B-29 was in flight. The target choice was passed down without Tibbet's involvement, but the day before, as final preparations were made, he decided to name his aircraft Enola Gay after his mother. He had personally selected the aircraft when it was still on the assembly line in Bellevue, Nebraska, but was now on the other side of the globe and tomorrow he would fly it on this vital mission. 
Tibbets had decided to fly the mission at late notice, and he moved the regular aircraft commander into the co-pilot's position, taking command himself. On the 6th of August 1945, Colonel Tibbets took off from Tinian in Enola Gay, accompanied by two other B-29s, an instrumentation and a photographic aircraft, for the six-hour flight to Hiroshima. They arrived overhead on a clear day at 31,000 feet. About an hour earlier, the B-29 straight flush had flown over the target and broadcast a short message. Cloud cover less than three-tenths at all altitudes. Advice, bomb primary. The air raid warning had sounded in Hiroshima for the previous overflight, but then gave the all-clear. Tibbets handed control of the aircraft to the bombardier, who was going to guide the B-29 over the final few miles. At 8.15 in the morning, he released the weapon. The little boy took 44 seconds to fall from the aircraft before the 141 pounds, 64 kilos of uranium-235 was detonated at a little below 2,000 feet over the city, a mere 800 feet from its aiming point. By the time the shockwave reached Enola Gay, it was around 11 miles past the release point. The detonation was remarkably inefficient releasing energy from only 1.7% of its fissionable material, but even this was equivalent to 16,000 metric tons of TNT. The radius of total destruction was about a mile, but intense fires broke out from the thermal blast, covering an area of four and a half square miles. Some 70 to 80,000 people, around 30% of the population, were killed by the blast and resulting firestorm. The same number were injured. Japanese officials determined that 69% of the buildings in Hiroshima were destroyed. The Japanese Second Army were conducting physical training barely 900 yards, less than a kilometre, from ground zero. 3,243 troops were killed. Twelve captured American airmen being held in a police headquarters were killed most instantly from the blast, but two survived to be stoned to death by local populace. Eight U.S. prisoners of war killed during medical experiments as part of a program in the local university, had their deaths blamed on the attack as an attempted cover-up. Sixteen hours later, while still coming to terms with the attack, the Japanese heard from President Truman. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Over time, and to this very day, arguments have gained and lost support on the ethical, legal, moral and military justification 
for the use of this nuclear weapon, as new evidence has become available and as new studies have been completed. It remains the subject of both popular and scholarly debate. Some think that Japan would not have surrendered unless there was an overwhelming demonstration of destructive capability. Those who oppose the bombing argue that it was militarily unnecessary and a naval blockade and conventional bombings would have forced Japan to surrender. Colonel Tibbetts said that he knew when he got the assignment it was going to be an emotional thing. We had feelings, but we had to put them in the background. We knew it was going to kill people right and left, but my one driving interest was to do the best job I could so that we could end the killing as quickly as possible. I sleep clearly every night. His career continued apace with many key positions, such as the Air Attaché in London and a director in the Strategic Air Division. He served as the B-47 Stratojet project officer before commanding the 308th Bombardment Wing and at the close of his career being promoted to Brigadier General and assigned to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In retirement, he contributed to films and books about his part in the conclusion of the Second World War, something that occasionally caused contention, but he was unapologetic about the part he played. He denounced the Smithsonian's 50th anniversary exhibition of the Enola Gay, calling it a big damned insult. The director of the National Air and Space Museum was compelled to resign over the controversy. Paul Tibbetts died in 2007. Concerned that his grave might become a place of protest or desecration, he asked that he be cremated and his ashes scattered over the English Channel, the body of water that spelt safety as he returned from his many wartime missions in his B-17 Red Gremlin. Whenever I visit the South Coast, which I do often, and look out across the channel, I shall ponder the life of this fine pilot, unable to seek eternal rest beneath the gravestone bearing his name. If you enjoyed this story, then why not help out and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find that at AirlinePilotGuy.com.